Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this Founders' Day lecture, Sir Paul Nurse, President of the Royal Society, discusses the great ideas of biology. It was the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau who once said that he was writing a long letter because he had no time to compose a short one. And there is, I think, wisdom in that aphorism, and much the same applies to introductions. Some speakers need uh, long introductions to convince the audience of their importance, whereas others have such a body of achievement that it seems almost an impertinence to behave as if the audience is unaware of what they have done. And Sir Paul Nurse falls very definitely into the latter category. Uh, He is a, a, a geneticist of worldwide reputation, one of the country's leading scientists, a man whose work is known across the globe. In 2001, he, with two others, was awarded the Nobel Prize for their work in relation to cell cycle regulation. Last year, he succeeded Martin Rees, Lord Rees of Ludlow, as president of the Royal Society, so he is now in a direct line from Isaac Newton. He has also won many other prizes, too numerous to mention, but one which I think I should specially pick out is the Copley Medal. But he is not a man who rests on his laurels. Far from it. After some years, as president of the Rockefeller University in New York, he became, on the 1st of January this year, the first director and chief executive of the the new United Kingdom Centre for Medical Research and Innovation. This is a post which is absolutely critical uh, to the future of the United Kingdom in that area of activity. It is a major coup for this country that Paul has come back from the United States to be its first director. He is a great scientist. He does have an international reputation but he is not a man who confines his activities uh, to academia or to the uh, laboratory. He's a man who fights for what he believes in. He fights for what he believes science needs. Now, not all of us can aspire to be um, great scientists, but when I saw, saw that in the five years that he was Director General of the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, he succeeded in doubling its funding, I felt that that was an ambition to which we at Bath can aspire, and it's an example uh, that I hope we will be able uh, to follow. He not only has fought for what he believes to be right in terms of trying to make sure that there is adequate funding for the work that he has been done, he also takes a full, a full part in debate over the sort of activities in which he is involved. And he's played a particularly major role in the campaign to clone human embryos for stem cell research. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour, but it's also a great pleasure for me to introduce Sir Paul Nurse to give the first Founders Lecture of the University of Bath. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you very much. I wondered if I could persuade you to come home and give it to my family, who um, 
who never don't seem to have quite the same rosy picture. As, uh, but that was very nice. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I am a graduate of the university. I got an honorary um, degree here some years ago, a very, very pleasant occasion. And I have uh, friends and colleagues here. Um, I hope maybe a couple of them in the audience. Um, and so it's always very pleasant to come back to this wonderful city and to this really good university. So thank you for the invitation to give what I think is the first Founders Lecture, so I do feel um, a little um, overawed by that, um, and did decide to uh, give a rather general talk in recognition of that. And um, you'll see the title up here, um, uh, Great Ideas of Biology. I saw that I had actually given um, a title, The Great Ideas of Biology, and I I clearly got an attack of um, humility after giving that title and calling it Great Ideas of Biology rather than The Great Ideas of Biology. Now, what I'm going to do um, is talk about uh, some of the great ideas of biology, clearly, because I like to do that um, because, on the whole, biologists tend not to talk about great ideas and and grand theories. This marks them out as being rather different to the physicists who, um, of course, spend the whole time with great ideas and and grand (laughs) theories. Biologists tend to be comfortable with little things, with details and particulars. Uh, We we do things like we list the numbers of species that you see in a habitat. Um, If we were a 19th century biologist, we'd count the numbers of hairs on a beetle's leg. Today, the equivalent is we sequence genes. It's the same obsession with particulars. We determine what RNAs and proteins would be found in a cell or in an organ. But although we do have an interest in lots of uh, details and particulars, biology does have some great ideas. And that's why I would like to communicate four of those today and point um, in the direction of a fifth still not really yet formulated, but one I think will be potentially of interest in the coming years. Um, In this talk, I'm going to touch on a history of ideas. There'll be quite a lot of history, a little little bit of philosophy, um, as well as some some science. And I hope at the end of it um, that I might uh, have communicated perhaps a different sort of way of thinking about what the nature of life is, because... Biology, of course, is focused on life, and uh, uh, um, great ideas should illuminate what life is. Now, I'm going to start with the idea of the cell um, as the basic unit of life. This is simply stated, um, all life is composed of cells, and the cell is the simplest unit exhibiting the characteristics of life. That's the idea. It is, if you like, um, that the cell is life's atom. It's the equivalent of of the atom in in chemistry or physics. Now, this is an idea that started in the um, 17th century but took around 200 years to fully develop. So it wasn't a flash of light. It was... um, a rather slow course of light, over a 200-year period. And as is so often the case in science, it was technology that begat discovery. And in this case, it was the invention of the microscope at the beginning of the 17th century, probably in the Netherlands, somewhere in Holland. But in the 1660s, a a scientific investigator, although they weren't called scientists then, Robert Hooke, applied the microscope 
to uh, living material. Robert Hooke was a sort of experimentalist for the Royal Society. The Royal Society was a club of gentlemen, and that means they didn't actually do anything. They just talked a lot about things, but they hired somebody to do things for them. And the person they hired was Robert Hooke, who was their, their first experimentalist, and he did things, and one of the things he did was to turn this microscope that you see here on the left, it's a compound uh, microscope, and he drew the image which is seen there in black and white. And this was a thin slither of cork, and he looked in there and he saw these boxes. On, on the right here, you'll see what a modern scanning EM would look like of the same material. Um, I've read somewhere, but I haven't been able to find it recently, that he used the term cell to describe this, and I hope this is accurate, um, because it reminded him of a sort of plan of a monastery with lots of little cells um, that were found in a monastery, and I, I, I hope that is correct, but um, uh, I haven't been able to find this in, in uh, recent years. Um, now, also what's interesting in science is um, not only that technology begats discovery, but once one person has found something, everybody finds it. Up until then, it's a mystery. Then within a, within a short period of time, and in this case, this was, this was an image from 1665, and by 1682... Another fellow of the Royal Society, Nehemiah Grew, who was an MD but uh, with an interest in botany, had done this beautiful picture of a, um, a vine um, cut through the stem here where we can see all the different cells in that plant stem. And again on the right, I put a scanning EM, a modern one, to show you what it would look like. And this would be of a quality that you would have found in... Um, a, 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 I, I was trained as a botanist in a plant anatomist textbook in the second half of the last um, century, and this is only uh, 17 years after the rather crude picture um, from Hook. Um, this is a, I actually have, have this picture. I have the, the Nehemiah Grew book from 1682 in which this is shown. It's one of my uh, things I'm very proud or very pleased to actually have. Um, in addition to seeing cells in plants... Um, it, uh, it, there were a number of others who looked in animals, which were rather more difficult to look at. Malpighi and Lonehook, for example, um, discovered blood cells, so it looked as if cells were in both plants and animals. But Lonehook also um, discovered single-celled organisms, the fact that you could have something living made of a single cell. And he, what he did is he scraped uh, material from between his teeth he looked under, in this case, a single-lens microscope, and he drew this. It's a rather charming picture. If you look at figure B there, um, it, it goes to C to D, and you'll see this bacteria that has sort of loop the loop under, under the microscope. So he was obviously watching what was happening um, in, in real time. He called these animalcules, as sort of um, as, as small animals, and it was the first discovery of, um, of single cells. Now, uh, Lowenhoek was interesting. He, w he worked in Delft. He was a draper. So, again, he wasn't a grand gentleman. He was a draper. And what's interesting about him is that he was the executor um, on, of the will of the painter Vermeer, Johannes Vermeer. And Vermeer is unusual in that he did a painting of a scientist. It was the same man. He did a painting of an astronomer and a geographer. It's the same, one, same man. Um, this is the one from the Louvre. The other one is in Germany. And um, I like to think that this might be Lonehook. There, there is a reproduction of Lonehook, and it looks a bit like him. I've no idea if this is true or not, but it's such a nice idea. I thought I would um, present it to you. So imagine this might be um, Lonehook. Now, over the subsequent 
100 um, years after this, with better microscopes and better histology, preparation of material to look at under the microscope, cells were discovered eventually everywhere, in all animals, in all plants, um, which it was argued um, by uh, German natural philosophers that um, we should consider um, plants and animals as just assemblages of those animals. That's, that's, how, they, uh, that's how they viewed them. And eventually, um, in the early 19th century, um, and this had a long history and many people were saying similar things, but we usually identify Schleiden and Schwamm as stating it first and most clearly, and and certainly they were the better publicists, so we tend to um, acknowledge them more. Nothing really changes, of course, over time. And this is Theodore Schwann, 1839. He wrote in German, um, rather serious-looking gentleman, as you can see. He said, we have seen that all organisms are composed of essentially like parts, namely of cells. So this was the statement that the cell was the basic structural unit of life. And a little later, another rather solemn German gentleman, this time Rudolf Virchow, who was also a politician, by the way, um, and, um, uh, uh, and, and really the founder of pathology, Um, He stated in 1858, every animal appears as a sum of vital units, each of which bears within itself the complete characteristics of life. And what this, of course, is arguing is that the cell not only is the structural basis of life, but it is also the basic functional unit of life. So it's both structure and function, and that basic unit is the single cell. Now, this was a major milestone in biology. It's not one that's recognized as much as a couple of the other ideas I'm about to talk about, but it's a really very important, and I'm surprised it's not really given more, um, more um, airtime. Cells are very important. Um, my old university, Rockefeller, played quite an uh, important role recently in um, developing um, the idea of the cell. We can see here that... Um, The cell underpins the reproduction and development of all living organisms. Um, What you see here is um, uh, the... um, What you you see here, I should say, is... uh, Hmm. Just stay there. Um, What you... Maybe maybe I'm pressing the wrong button. Yes. Um, I'm not going to play with that. I haven't learned how to do it. I'm going to, what you see here is an early mammalian embryo, and you see all those dots there. They're all individual cells that are making um, up the embryo. And they are all derived from this. This is a, a mammalian egg being fertilized by um, a, a series of, of sperm. And if I haven't yet convinced you how important the cell is, I'll say one more thing. Remember, every one of you in this audience once looked like that. You all started as a single cell. And if I can't convince you that therefore cells should be taken seriously and are interesting, then I, will, I should really stop talking now. Every one of us once looked like that. So the cell, the basic unit of life, it underpins all reproduction and development and is still a very important concept today. We've already um, heard in that very nice introduction that stem cells are uh, have, uh, not only very important for understanding how um, organisms work, how they develop, but also have the potential, um, very significant potential um, for therapies. Second idea, one that is more familiar and which has perhaps had more... Um, exposure in recent years, and that is the gene that forms the basis for heredity. Now, from ancient times, classical times, classical 
um, Greek times, it was observed and recorded that particular characteristics seen in an individual were passed down from generation to generation, from parents to offspring, if there were certain characteristics, a shape of a nose, a colour of the eyes, colour of hair and so on, then these characteristics were also seen in um, the offspring. And the question was, what was the basis of this heredity? This was a problem that was tackled by plant breeders in particular in the uh, mid-19th century, um, who were very interested in crossing plants with different characteristics to improve them, for example, for um, the purposes of, of growing crops. And in those um, experiments where they crossed different um, strains, of course, they, being naturally curious individuals, um, they wondered about um, uh, what it meant for, the, for heredity. And they, they realised it was just really very complicated. Characters... It seemed to blend sometimes. You've got intermediate characters in the offspring. Sometimes they disappeared in one generation, reappeared in the next generation. Sometimes they, reappeared, they were simply present in the first generation. And nobody could really make much sense of it until Grigor Mendel came along. Now, Grigor Mendel was, um, I call him the great gardening monk, because he was a gardener and a geneticist. Indeed, the um, founder of genetics. He worked in Brno, now in the Czech Republic, um, then in the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire, and he was a member of what can be best described as an order of scientific monks. Um, one thing we tend to forget, that the scientific endeavour, which we now associate with the great um, research universities, was not, that was not the case um, until the, towards the end of the 19th century, um, here was in the middle of the 19th century when it was either a uh, rich um, uh, gentleman who did this uh, most of the time um, uh, 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 as a sort of pastime, like Darwin, who we'll be mentioning in a moment, <laughs> occasional individuals like Davy and, and Faraday, um, and um, also the church that actually had um, interest in science. And in this particular case, um, the, um, the, the monastery produced scientists who taught in the local population. And what um, Mendel did um, was that he was trained as a physicist. And uh, he, he actually did experiments on meteorology and, and astronomy. I've seen his telescope and, um, and also looked at his, his, um, his weather records. And that meant that he brought to the study of plant breeding... Um, two characteristics that were very important. The first is he counted things. Biologists tend to describe things, but not so readily count them. We do now, but then he counted things. And secondly, he came up with very clear hypotheses, he, which he could then go on to test. So what he did was uh, he argued that to sort out what was happening with these characters that were blending or disappearing and re-emerging, he had to accurately catalogue the different types of plants that were being produced and the different types of plant forms and characters and how they appeared in different generations. Now, he was successful for several reasons. Um, the, the first reason is that he chose material he can understand. Now, he did trial studies with about half a dozen different plant species, and um, 
of those, he found that he could make most sense of the garden pea. He did this work, incidentally, in this garden here. This is the monastery. I visited this in Bruno, and it's no longer there, but to the left of it was a massive greenhouse where he, you know, he, he had... It was like applying to a research council. He applied to the Catholic Church. He got, um, uh, you know, a big greenhouse, which was over here, uh, one that would have been about half the size of this lecture theatre. I mean, this was quite a big, um, big activity. And within it, he grew his different plants, and he found that peas showed simpler patterns of inheritance. I mention that because um, sometimes people feel that that is cheating. You know, to, have a, to do experiments and then only choose the ones that you can actually interpret um, does seem like cheating. But actually, it's part of the scientific process, really. You choose material that you can make progress with, and often that's uh, simpler progress. You get the idea, and then eventually you can apply it to the more complicated things. So it's very important to choose material, choose problems that you can actually understand. The second point is that, as I said already, he recorded accurately and counted, and then he generated um, um, theories. So what did he observe? This is, by the way, the P that he used, which had very distinct characteristics. So you had tall plants, short plants, different coloured flowers, different coloured seeds, and one particular one, and I hope you can see that there's both yellows and green ones here. These are yellow and green, which is another character that he, um, that he, look, that he looked at. Um, what he observed was that very clearly in the first generation of, of, after a cross, one character often dominated. But then that character re-emerged in the second generation in very distinct ratios. And there's the famous, if you remember this from your school days, the famous three-to-one ratio that he actually observed. <laughs> to my astonishment, only a few years ago, by the way, I discovered that Charles Darwin, around the same time, was also doing crosses between plants, in his case the snapdragon. He also found and recorded a three-to-one ratio, but he didn't try to interpret it. It's a complete ironical. He published it in 1868, a couple of years after Mendel, whose work we don't think he was aware of, uh, but he didn't try to interpret it. Anyway, what this meant to Mendel, seeing a three-to-one ratio, is that because of his physicist and uh, mathematical training, it looked like, to him, as if it was the sorting out of combinations. And um, this led him to propose what is essentially a particulate theory of heredity, a particulate theory of heredity. That's very important. And what he proposed was the following, and it was a brilliant piece of reasoning. He, did, he proposed that there were particles, I'm going to call them particles, he didn't use that name, which we would now know as genes, which determined characters. And that in, for example, the plant material, the most other living things that we are interested in, there were two particles that, um, in each plant which were responsible for a particular character. Um, but of those two particles, which we would now call genes, only one of those would pass into a particular gamete, either a, 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 poly, a pollen um, or an ovule, an egg. But on fertilization, when the pollen fertilized the ovule, then each one would uh, donate one of those um, particles, so you would restore two. And one particle might dominate over the other and become the determining character. So this was why I say it's combinatorial. It's like combining particles. It's also a second principle there, which is very important. And that second principle um, is that, it, it, is that the, these particles must be conveying information from one generation to the other. That's actually an important concept. 
that the particles are conveying information in the gene and determining what the characteristics are um, that, um, that give rise to particular um, characters, to particular phenotype. Now, this was a brilliant piece of abstract reasoning. It really was brilliant. Um, it was completely correct, but interestingly, nobody took any notice of it at the time. Absolutely no notice at all. It's one of the examples that um, the romantics who write history of science, you know, when they want to say the mainstream is always wrong, um, they can refer back to this and say, well, nobody took any notice of Mendel, so why do we take any notice of global warming, for example? Anyway, what happened here was that it was rediscovered 35 years later simultaneously by three groups who were repeating experiments, saw the same combinations, and then found that they had been completely scooped by the gardening monk 35 years before. One of the groups tried to sneak it in without actually referring to Mendel. Um, in the first draft, he didn't. And then he, um, he was forced by one of the other groups to actually admit who was going to be second, and then decided, well, it'd be better to be third and the other guy to be second, and they could all acknowledge Mendel before. Now, why was it that um, 35 years previously this, this hadn't been accepted and then later it was completely accepted? And I think, um, it, nobody really knows, but I think probably in that intervening period, cell biology um, resulted in the discovery of chromosomes, um, which we now know to be a string of genes, um, and that these chromosomes appeared as threads in dividing cells. This is an onion um, tip here, root tip, and you can see, for example, that beautiful dividing cell there, which is um, made up of chromosomes separating. And this uh, was uh, being postulated as perhaps the hereditary determinants, because it did look as each every cell was getting an equal amount of components. And then what was really nice about this was work by Van Beneden with nematodes, and what was good here, again, about simple, um, the appropriate material, is that this nematode worm, it's a worm, small worm, had four chromosomes. So you could easily count them, unlike those, um, you know, these, it's difficult to know what's going on. Here there were only four chromosomes, and in the gametes, only two chromosomes appeared. Okay? And why that was important, I think it must be obvious to you, is that, of course, that's exactly what Mendel was proposing, that there would be a reduction in half of the numbers of particles. And here you were seeing chromosomes being reduced from four to two. So that mirrored what Mendel had suggested, and what that meant was that the abstract reasoning of Mendel was being supported by concrete observation of the cytologist. And that then, I think, led to biologists taking it um, much more seriously. So very important, um, a very important observation, which Ham laid the foundations for the 20th century as really in biology the, the, the century of, of, of genetics. Um, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, was discovered as the hereditary material that made up these chromosomes. That was discovered in pneumococcus by Avery McLeod and McCarthy of Rockefeller University that I uh, uh, stopped running only two weeks ago. I want to say something here. This was published in 1944. I was taught it as a student uh, in the, uh, 1968. And when I went to Rockefeller in 2003, this little old man came up to me and introduced himself as Mac. And then he said, Mac McCarty. And all I could say there, because I thought Mac McCarty had been dead for about 30 years, I said, <laughs> is that you're not the Mac McCarty, to which he said, yes, I am the Mac McCarty. <laughs> 
And he, in a rather beautiful experiment where you could extract DNA and transform the phenotype, maybe known to some of you, um, was responsible for showing that DNA was the hereditary material. Not Watson and Crick. They showed the structure, which is extremely important. And I won't go through this because this will be very familiar um, to you. And then um, with uh, um, particularly um, uh, Francis Crick, um, showed the central dogma where the information stored in the sequence of nucleotides in the, in the gene, in the DNA, is transcribed into a sequence of nucleotides in the RNA, which is in turn translated into a sequence of amino acids in the protein. And it is that protein which determines many of the characteristics, uh, lots of individual proteins, of course, that determine many of the characteristics of life. So this was a, also a very important idea, The gene is the basis of heredity. The genotype, the collection of genes and the types of genes you have there, determines the phenotype, that is the characteristics of the organism. And this is also continues to be an exceptionally important concept with great implications, for example, of what we are. How much are we determined by our genes, what we inherit from our parents? How much are we determined by our environmental Um, exposure and our experiences. And this has great uh, uh, um, significance um, for how we view ourselves as human beings and all sorts of other things, including our justice system. So it's a very, very important idea. The third idea, evolution by natural selection. You knew that was coming, of course. You knew it was coming. If you go into um, a, a normal um, bookshop and go into the sort of popular science series, you would think This and string theory were the only two things that any scientist actually worked on because the majority of books, oh no, that's an exaggeration, many of the books are to do with um, evolution um, and natural selection and also, of course, um, with high-energy physics and cosmology. We can put that in there too. Now, um, this idea, evolution by natural selection, has two parts. The first is that life evolves. It's never static that life over the history of the planet evolves. There are uh, species arising, species um, being exterminated. Therefore, the implication is there is a tree of life with um, all organisms being related to each other by descent. So that's the first part of the idea. The second is that the major mechanism driving that evolution is natural selection. That is to say, a process I shall describe to you which is able to give rise to different species. Now, both of these ideas are usually associated with Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin is over there on the left. It's before he uh, grew his beard and became like Elijah. Um, It was in the 1950s, when... uh, 1950s, 1850s, um, uh, when he was um, studying barnacles for about a decade, um, which is what he did, some say, to avoid actually trying to publish his ideas, but that's another, another story. But although both of these ideas are associated with, um, with Charles, the first idea, um, that is, that life evolves, uh, had actually been discussed much earlier. Um, and um, a number of naturalists and scientists in the 18th century, and some would say even earlier, such as Lamarck, talked about evolution, including Charles's grandfather, uh, who show, who's shown here on the left, Erasmus Darwin. And I want to tell you just briefly a little bit about Erasmus Darwin because he's such an interesting character. Um, Charles was interesting too, but he did sort of get a bit sort of stodgy in his old age, whereas Erasmus 
um, was a very interesting person. He was a doctor, a doctor who lived in Lichfield in the Midlands and in Derby. Um, He was a member of the so-called Lunar Society. Um, There's been some nice books about the Lunar Society in in recent years. They were nicknamed... And this Lunar Society used to meet once a month, um, including people like James Watt, for example, Erasmus Darwin and and, and others, um, to discuss science and engineering and ideas. They were called the Lunatics because they met once a month in the lunar cycle. They would ride home under the full moon you know, presumably somewhat inebriated by that point, and um, they, chose, they chose the full moon because it still provided a light um, to get home. Erasmus was a fat, charming man. Um, they say that he cut out an oval in his dining table so he could actually get closer to his food, so he could actually <laughs> sit and accommodate his um, stomach. He was famous as a doctor because he had one great quality... He was very good at telling you if you were dying or not. And this was actually very important in the 18th century when you wanted to put your house in order. You may not want to do that too early because of all the problems that that might um, um, give to um, those that might inherit from you or might not. And knowing that you were uh, 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 reaching the end of your life was extremely important to, um, to people. I'm not sure he cured many people. Um, that only happened with doctors really um, from about the um, mid-19th century onwards, to be quite honest with you. And he had another feature. He charged according to an individual's income. Um, and George III wanted him to be his physician, by the way. He was a scientist, a doctor, and a poet, and wrote most of his scientific discoveries up in blank verse. I have a number of his books from the 18th century, and it's all written in their verse. I mean, it's just hilarious, I have to tell you. He writes a lot about the... Um, about um, plant breeding, and he, you know, it's all about the sex life of, um, you know, the delphinium, and um, very, it's very, very interesting. He was a radical, a proponent of, of, of education, public education for women, and wrote a book on that, and he had two illegitimate daughters who he set up as teachers. Anyway, he argued that life evolved, and his motto was everything from shells, That's because within a shell you have a mollusk, which is rather a formless sort of object, and he was arguing everything could be formed, including ourselves, from that um, that, uh, rather formless object. He printed that in Latin um, on his coach um, as his motto, but the dean of Lichfield, and he lived in Lichfield close, didn't like it because obviously um, he found it offensive, and... Uh, advised his richer patients from whom he um, gained his living that they shouldn't go to this rather um, unrespectful man. And so he had to paint it out um, to keep his, um, to keep his, um, his patients, his rich patients. So read about Erasmus Darwin. Very good biographies by two now, actually, by Desmond King Helly. Um, also a fellow of the Royal Society, actually. But it was his grandson... Charles, this man here, who gathered, and what he did, and this is uh, crucial to recognise, he gathered a vast amount of information and argument supporting the idea of evolution based on the fossil record and living animals and plants, so that this idea had to be taken seriously. And then he went, of course, on, or not then, he went on this uh, beagle trip for five years and then retreated to Down House in Kent, eventually writing The Origin of Species, in, um, in 1859. And in that uh, book, he, this is the only illustration in the origin, actually, he drew um, a tree of life. At the top, you see present species, and all these are species that went extinct. And look at this. He wasn't sure whether life arose once, 
or many times. No reason, of course, that he should know that. In fact, it's not completely clear now, I guess. But um, anyway, he left, that, uh, he left that actually open. And uh, he observed that um, living... So this was the idea of, of, of evolution. And he also observed that living organisms were beautifully adapted to their lifestyles and environment, particularly using the Galapagos finches, their beaks, which were involved, and this is a set of finches that had all evolved in the last 10 million years or so, that where the beaks had been evolved for different um, uh, processes, like catching insects or breaking nuts. And I put up here a series of, of, of the equivalents, you know, the modern-day equivalent, just to get over the idea. These are all adapted for the use that we would make of them, just like the um, finches' um, beak. Well, from the 1840s onwards, he argued that this came about as, as, uh, as a consequence of natural selection, um, he published this idea in 1858, together with Alfred Wallace, another British naturalist who had the same idea completely independently and wrote it up in a 20-page letter that he sent to Darwin. I mean, the, uh, and Darwin was racked with what he should do with it because of the conflict of, of interest. Interestingly, uh, um, the idea of natural selection is written in a very crude way, even before both of those. Patrick Matthew, who was a tree grower, in a book on naval timber in 1831, proposed the concept of natural selection. didn't really argue it very well, but it wasn't even um, the idea of natural selection wasn't simply um, uh, uh, Darwin's and also Wallace's. So what is this idea of, of natural selection? Well, the idea is that within a species, a population of species, of a species, there are variants. And these variants arise due to inheritable differences in the genes, as we were just talking about. Th those variants, those organisms which are most successful, will breed more, reproduce more, and so pass on to the next generation, more of their progeny, and therefore more of the genes that are responsible for those progeny. And as a consequence, if you look at the pool of genes in successive populations, they will change in a way which is selected um, by those which are most successful. This is um, so-called survival of the fittest, a term used by Spencer, by the way, not, not Darwin. Eventually, these changes in, in, in genes gradually lead to sufficient changes in the characteristics of the species that there's breeding isolation, and as a consequence of that, speciation and therefore evolution. So I want to repeat this argument that I've just said there, linking it to the two earlier ideas of the cell and the gene. And the reason I'm going to say that is because of a, an argument made by a geneticist in the 1960s called Muller, he was thinking about how best to define life. And he defined life as um, living things have properties which allow them to undergo natural selection and therefore to evolve. In other words, he put natural selection right at the middle of what life is. And he said there have to be three characteristics, the three properties. Life must reproduce... Life must have a heredity system whereby information defining the characteristics of any organism is inherited during reproduction. That's the genes. And thirdly, that heredity system must exhibit variability upon which natural selection can work. Now, I've got here the cell and a gene undergoing reproduction. And what you see here is a cell. In the middle there is some genes, double helix. You'll see that it divides and the genes um, replicate, and you get two different cell types. 
And what we've proposed here is that um, going from here to here, there's a genetic change that means instead of the outer surface being yellow, the outer surface is red. Okay? Now, if it turns out that red cells reproduce better than yellow cells, then this is an example of simple evolution. And I'm now going to state the three things I just said. Cells reproduce. They have genes which define the characteristics of the cell, and those genes exhibit variability due to um, incorrect mistakes in the replication of DNA or um, other damage of the DNA. So they exhibit variability, and when that's copied, it's maintained down the lineage of cells. Therefore, once there is single-celled life with genes acting as a heredity system, natural selection inevitably must take place, and that would allow evolution to take place. And this is, often isn't presented in this way, but it's extremely important because what it suggests is that the ideas of the cell and the gene and evolution by natural selection are all linked together, and they form a sort of triad of understanding what fundamental properties of, uh, of, of life might be. Well, that idea was Charles Darwin, and this is when he became the sage with his big beard. And um, this wonderful sentences that he, um, that he ended the origin of species. Um, I'll just read it to you. Whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, because he thought his idea was as important as the physicist's, as, as Isaac Newton's idea of gravity, from so simple a beginning... Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Beautiful sentence that really describes it all up. So evolution by natural selection. All life evolves and is related by descent. Natural selection is the major mechanism. We can argue a lot about other mechanisms too. Kings, and then how relevant is it today? Well, as we know, in certain parts of the world, including the middle of America, it's very important. Go to Kansas, and you can have quite a lot of arguments about this. But kin selection, I want to point out two things, actually, that I think are interesting. The idea of kin selection, that is that, that, um, that, you, that you, um, if you can let your brother or your sister or your children survive over you because there will be more genes, more of your genes passed on to the next population, um, an idea from the British evolutionist Bill Hamilton, um, that's relevant to the evolution of altruism. And we, again, it may tell us more about some things about how we actually think. And the second point I make here is, well, once we know that we are related to all living things, it makes us think about the responsibilities we have for our relatives. And um, I like to think that maybe as, as possibly the highest evolutionary peak, we can argue about that whether we are or not, perhaps we should be stewards for our relatives. And I think that's a, um, a, a, an important point too. Now, this is an extremely um, powerful idea of, and even allows us to think about what life is, entities with properties that can undergo natural selection. But this definition of life is sort of historical. It explains where life comes from, but it's not so satisfactory in explaining how life actually works, works today. And for that, we move to the fourth day, which is life as chemistry. And there it's quite simply stated, life... Um, chemistry and physics are the mechanistic basis of life. We can understand life in terms of um, physics and in terms of chemistry. Now, Aristotle argued something different 
in fact, he argued that living things had a natural end or goal, and movement towards this was driven by an inner vital force called vitalism, and that that was different to um, inanimate matter. And so the replacement of that idea of vitalism, that life is best understood in terms of chemistry and physics, is really this idea here of life as chemistry. And it's central to our um, idea that uh, which had, and it occurred mainly over the 19th century, that we should think of, 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 of life as, of course, as um, chemistry. Now, where did this idea come from? Well, it mostly had a French origin, actually, and, um, and it being French, it was a particular interest in wine. And um, the famous chemist Anton Lavoisier who uh, is seen here with his wife, who was his research assistant, actually, um, was um, the founder of modern chemistry, essentially. This painting, by the way, was by David, and Rockefeller University used to own it. And when it went through one of its periodic financial crises... Is the university in a financial crisis at the moment? No. Never, never, really. Well, it's 9,000 is going to get you out. Is that right? <laughs> um, Sorry, that was obviously a sort of... <laughs> um, we had to sell it anyway, um, and we sold it to the Metropolitan, and it's now worth $100 million, apparently, but um, it wasn't then, but there we are, um, 40, 50 years ago. Anyway, Lavoisier and Laplace, Laplace worked on evolution of galaxies and so on, in 1783 showed something really quite interesting. They showed that when you burnt charcoal made of carbon and looked at how much carbon dioxide was made, and looked how much heat was made, it was exactly the same um, for a guinea pig, how much heat a guinea pig made, and how much carbon dioxide it was producing. And that made it think that um, a guinea pig's respiration was like a slow-burning candle. That's how, they, that's how they described it. And therefore they thought that there was a great similarity between living processes and chemical processes, and that vital processes in life are chemical reactions, was the, is the conclusion they came to. This was really a very clever piece of reasoning as well. Unfortunately for Lavoisier, who was actually a supporter of the French Revolution, he was also a tax collector. And um, as the French Revolution went increasingly bad, um, he, um, here's another engraving, he, you can see the guillotine over there, in 1793 he, um, he lost his head. And his judge, in, sorry, 1794, his judge argued, um, great, we must always think this when we deal with politicians, the republic has no need of chemists and savants, <laughs> is what they said when, because uh, they tried to make special pleading that he was a scientist and could contribute to the revolution. The republic has no need of chemists and savants. Just be careful about our politicians, that's all right. All I need to say. Anyway... What he did was studied fermentation, and he showed that the sugar level in a grape extract um, went down, was turned into ethanol, and that there were small amounts of yeast there, and he began to argue that these chemical changes from um, sugar to alcohol was part of, of the chemistry of life. And uh, another Frenchman, Louis Pasteur, famous painting we have here, took this work further 50 years later in the 1850s, and he demonstrated that microbes were responsible for those chemical transformations and fermentation. He was working in Lille in um, 1856, um, where there were sugar beet fermentations, 
um, which occasionally went wrong so that they didn't make alcohol. Occasionally they went sour, making lactic acid. He turned a microscope onto that and showed that um, when alcohol was made, he found yeast in those fermentation. When acid was made, he found bacteria in those fermentation. So what he argued was that there were specific microbes that generated um, a good fermentation and a bad fermentation, and uh, that was extremely useful, actually, for industry up there because they just had to make sure there was yeast and they didn't then waste it. But he took it from that applied project, and this is why it's actually never really sensible to divide science into basic and applied. It really isn't quite like that. He took this applied project and turned it into a bit of important fundamental science by making the following argument, that fermentation was a physiological act yielding chemical products necessary for the cell, and such chemical reactions were an expression of the life of the cell. In other words, chemistry was central also for life. Well, how did this all work? Well, by the end of the 20th, uh, by the turn of the 20th century, it was being argued that um, life's processes could all be reduced to chemistry, and so biochemistry was born. And central to this is the idea of proteins, um, which, um, I've, I've got, which I've mentioned briefly in the central dogma. Here is a protein, and each of these is different amino acids. And the way I, like, I want you to think about these is as little chemical machines. And the little chemical machines have properties that you have different residues here which have different charges, um, positive or negative, which like water or don't like water, which are bulky or not. And all of these charged shapes with different properties give rise to um, little catalytic machines, which we call enzymes, that can cause chemical changes and, um, and metabolic changes. Much in this very simple um, picture here where you have a particular shape with a substrate, a little triangle, and then the, uh, the enzyme changes its shape and can change what characters are uh, the characteristics of, of, the, um, of the molecules that are there, which, as you see, are changing, um, are changing shape. Now, the extraordinary thing about this in living organisms is that in a cell, um, there are many such reactions, chemical reactions, going on at the same time. This is actually a metabolic map. Each of these dots is a, is a chemical reaction. It's only a small part of what goes on in a, in a living cell, and all of these reactions are going on simultaneously in each cell within our body. Just imagine it. It's extraordinary. Many, many hundreds, thousands of reactions are going on in the same time. And I mention it like that because if you look at the structure of a cell, we're going back to a cell, you'll see um, it, it, it's very compartmentalized. Here we have a mitochondria, here we have uh, a nucleus, and we have different structures here. And I've started thinking about this in a different sort of way that actually um, what we should do is think of this cell as a myriad of different chemical micro-compartments and environments allowing different chemical reactions to actually be carried on at the same time. So the conditions here will differ from the conditions here. You can do that with compartments, you can do it with the shape of enzymes that isolate you from elsewhere, um, but this is the way in which the, uh, all these reactions can carry out, be carried out at the same, at the same time. So this was my fourth idea. Life is chemistry. It provides a, a good explanation for life and the mechanistic explanations of life. It's the basis for understanding many diseases. I mean, uh, this really what it, the pharmaceutical industry is built in 
built upon in trying to discover what the chemical defects are that are related, in a di- which are uh, uh, the cause of a disease, and then seeing if you can correct them in some sort of way with a, a, a chemical, a drug that will inhibit something or activate something, and therefore correct um, a defect that is seen in those um, particular cells. So it's very, very critical um, for, um, for uh, the uh, pharmaceutical and biotechnology um, industries. And, of course, it also means that vitalism is dead. That um, old idea of Aristotle um, is finally um, um, put to rest, and it took quite a few years to actually do that during, during the 19th century. So that leads me to my final idea, and so I'm coming towards the end of my talk. This is an idea which is, um, it's not my idea at all, but it's one which um, I think most biologists would say that the four ideas I talked about up until now are important ideas, as are other ones. We can talk about ecology, for example, where there's um, things one can think about. But the fifth idea is to consider um, biology as an organised system. And I want to spend the last few minutes of my talk talking about this. Now, the, the notion here is that we can make sense of biology if we focus upon it as an organized, complex system. Now, thinking about complex systems has been around for years, actually. I did a little bit of, sort of, uh, of research into where it came from, and I found, to my surprise, that Immanuel Kant, um, the philosopher, um, speculated in one of his books that biology could be best understood as a complex system. He's very um, surprised about that. But it's been thought about in a number of different situations, in thinking about the weather and climate, transportation, social behaviours, and so on, as well as biology, as, um, as, uh, as all as complex systems. And the idea, I think, our objective in biology, is to try and explain higher-order phenomena that we associate with life, Phenomena such as homeostasis, that is the fact that, for example, um, we operate as an organism and if, even though we may be in a very hot or cold environment, for example, we maintain a constant temperature. That's just one example of homeostasis. We maintain a stasis, we maintain the same state. Um, phenomena such as communication, communication between individuals, organisms, organs, cells, spatial and temporal organization, the fact that we are all organized in space in rather similar ways. I can look at all of you and know that you, because of your shape, that you're a human being. Um, whereas if you go out there and, and look at the, uh, at the uh, cherry trees, you know they are cherry trees. That's mostly because they have very defined shapes very defined spatial organization, and, and for that matter, temporal organization, organization within time. So uh, translating um, the... Normally when we, we describe biology, we, we do it in, in terms of descriptions of chemical and physical processes, as I just said in the fourth idea. But what we have to start thinking about is how we translate those descriptions of the chemistry and, uh, and, uh, and physics into the management of information in complex systems, i.e. how information is gathered, stored, and processed to determine outputs. In other words, we're dealing here with uh, uh, um, uh, the management of information and how that works. And this sort of approach emphasizes regulation, networks, systems organization, emergent behaviors that come out of that complexity. As Francis Crick said... You, should, um, you can follow three things in life, 
matter, energy, and information. And the most important of those three, if I can become biblical, is information. And like faith, hope, and charity. Now, to illustrate this point, I'm going to make um, the use of two extremely well-known examples. The first is the DNA double helix, which I've already referred to. And the point is that this is quite a beautiful structure. You know, the double helix, and it's quite iconic. But it isn't the structure that makes this beautiful. What makes it beautiful is that once you've understood this, you realize that the structure of DNA reveals that it is, in fact, it is in fact a digital information storage design, device, just like a computer. Because here we have all these nucleotides here, which are storing digitally information. DNA got it first. I mean, by about um, three and a half billion years before we, got, um, uh, uh, um, before we got a computer. And it's knowing that DNA is a digital information storage device that actually gives us understanding of heredity, one of the phenomena of life. But here what we're doing is emphasizing um, the um, information and the complex system as underpinning a biological um, phenomenon. So it's only when the chemical structure is expressed in terms of information and information storage does it make biological sense. That's the point I'm making. You translate from the chemistry into thinking about it in terms of information, and then it makes sense. The second, also well-known example, is regulation, metabolic regulation. And this is based on um, feedback control. I took this as a picture in a New Zealand steamboat, and this is a governor. And everybody understands how this works intuitively. Isn't it funny about how we always understand all machines that were built before 1900 and virtually no machines built after 1900? And that's the case here. This is very simple. You know, this is attached to a steam engine. It spins. Those balls are thrown out by centrifugal force. It lifts up its valve and it shuts off steam going into the engine. It slows the engine down. So it's a governor. And we understand that immediately. You know, you look at, um, you know, you look like the inside of a radio and you understand nothing, you know? No idea how it works. And this idea was, of course, used by Jacob Mono in the 1960s uh, to describe a negative feedback loop in a, a metabolic pathway where A is turned to B is turned to C, and then C feeds back on the A to B and switches it off. So when you get too much C, you switch off A to B, and therefore C will drop. Okay, very simple idea. And you can get positive feedback loops, which have different consequences. C, in this case, promotes A to B, and that produces a switch. So this gives homeostasis, this gives you switch behavior. Once again, this allows you to understand an idea. You can describe all of this in terms of chemistry. This, this will be a protein interacting with DNA and interacting with other things. But you get no understanding until it's translated into the terms of, um, of, uh, of information and information management. And this, for those who are interested, was originally applied to the lac operon in a bacterium uh, regulating how lactose is made. So these regulatory circuits form feedback controls. They can form switches. More sophisticated ones can make timers or oscillators or toggles that go backwards and forwards. And when you combine all of these together, you get very um, complex um, networks. A a metaphor for this is um, an electronic circuit. I just said we don't understand how these things work. And I, I I stole this from somebody who... uh, This is the inside, I think, of a radio, and he replaced different elements of this with names of of oncogenes in this case, genes that do things that are important um, for cancer. And uh, this is a metaphor, because this is all dealing with information. But, of course, 
when you compare a cell or a living organism to a computer, there's one um, big difference emphasised actually by Dennis Bray in a recent book. This is hardware, and what Dennis Bray argued is that, of course, within a cell, it's wetware, because all these different elements here are connected through chemistry, through solution chemistry. And what this means is that the wires connecting different things are diffusible chemicals. And once the wires become diffusible chemicals, it's very easily to rewire the hardware. Okay? So not only do you have software, if you like, which is sort of operative, but here you can rewire the hardware to get certain outcomes. This is very, very sophisticated. So this type of argument is, um, suggests that we need to consider the cell, and the cell is the simplest um, unit of life, remember, as a complex compl- uh, chemical system, wetware, acting as a logical computational machine which links together different logical information processing um, modules. And I'm going to end by just giving you a few examples of how this might actually help us in understanding life. The first is to have another metaphor, which is to think of complex networks in terms of, of, of hubs. And this is a concept that is, that's quite important because when you look at m- metabolism, you find within the cell that there are certain places which are well connected to other places. And they have important regulatory roles in that system, just like transportation hubs. Here, for example, I forget which city this is. It's in Texas, so let's say it's um, Dallas. Um, um, here, this is important. So if we drop a bomb there, we influence a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things that happen. If, on the other hand, we drop a bomb on Kansas City, nobody would notice. Okay? <laughs> and that tells you that aeroplane... It, it, it gives you the concept of, of complex networks and how, and, 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 and how, they, and how they may work. Um, but the networks that are present in life are very, very complicated. And here I'm going to get to a, a, an issue. We tend to think and design machines that look like the top. Okay, Linear thought, linear pathways, just like a metabolic pathway. You start with A, you end up with Z, and everything is causal. That's how, not only how we design machines, mostly, I mean, it is now changing, but it's also how we think. We get uncomfortable if we can't think in those sort of causal sort of ways. The reality in life is something like this. Up there, we know that if the third arrow is taken out, everything will stop. You know, it's obvious. If this arrow is taken out here, it's much more difficult to see quite what the consequence is. You can work it out, but it is not immediately intuitive. So it's much more complicated in trying to understand how things work. It's not an on-off switch. It's complicated, different things happen, there's redundancies, and you you can take this gene out and it maybe doesn't matter, or it matters sometimes. It's all very complicated. And as human beings, or at least half of the human race, think very much like the top. The other half think a bit more like the bottom, and I illustrate that with this picture from a pilot's manual. (laughs) Men think like that, okay? And they're just off and on. And women are much more subtle, as we can see down here, and I'm arguing we need to be much more like this than like that, because that's how life actually is working, like there. What are the implications um, for thinking in this sort of way, for example, with, um, with signalling? I'm going to show you something here, back to our linear pathway. Um, 
this is how biologists start thinking. You know, we turn on something here and something comes out the end here. It's a bit like a telegraph in a 19th century railway. Okay, you, you, uh, you, you, you press something here and you get a red light down here. Okay? Now you get Morse and you invent the Morse code. Okay? You invent the Morse code. You introduce dynamics into this and suddenly the richness of communication is immensely increased. Here, you can only give two messages, on or off, yes or no. If you introduce dynamics into it, like the Morse code, then you get much more information. So how can you introduce dynamics? Well, instead of just having it on and off, you can oscillate signals. So if you oscillate a signal every, for example, 20 seconds, or, as in the top, every um, shorter time, I can't divide it, <laughs> um, then you get a, can get a different message, a different outcome. And that's seen with the Morse code, as I said. You move from just having a red light or a green light, or you can write the works of Shakespeare by introducing dynamics. Now, I am convinced that biology makes much more use of dynamics, which we've yet to describe. We're still at the thinking very often in terms of linear, in, in terms of linear pathways. So um, these is the sort of thinking and the management of information that I think is important. We need to understand how form is made, not, this is a phage, this is at such a, a simple level, it's just the local assembly of molecules. We can understand that. But when you come to a cell, it works on a bigger scale, which has got to involve different sorts of principles and different sorts of concepts. Alan Turing had ideas about that with his chemical ways. won't say anything more about that. This is the equation that was important for it. Um, but we need to think differently to understand how um, space is organised in living things. And the final thing that I want to bring to your attention in this, is the following. That is, that life is not intelligently designed. And that's important because we tend to try to think that it is intelligently designed. What we have to remember is that biologically machines are not designed. They evolve by natural selection. They tend to add on to what was already there. And this means there are redundancies and circuits that are no longer relevant. And you, I've illustrated this with John Harrison's clocks. I don't know if you know the story of John Harrison, the clockmaker to solve the problem of longitude. And in fact, when I got my honorary degree here, Darva Sobel got an honorary degree at the same time. He wrote that wonderful little book on exactly this matter. And why I point this out is these are the four clocks, H1, H2, H3, and H4, that he made. Okay. And the first one up there, which was partly made of wood, wasn't good enough for the Admiralty. He went through all these transformations to get this one here. The point I'm making is that this guy is utterly different from the top left hand one. It didn't evolve through this process. He made this, learned from it, and then completely redesigned from scratch. Okay? This is not how life works. It's how we work. And when we think about how cells and organisms work, we tend to think that it's designed intelligently and we get into a mess because, in fact, it's a lot more redundant. There's components that are present there have got to be present here which are no longer do um, what, um, what they used to do. Think of our appendix. We have uh, an appendix. It does very little now, but used to be very important when we ate grass, which we don't do anymore, of course. So, um, where will this lead us? Well, this is my final sentences, really. I think this, thinking about it in terms of a complex system, Thinking about it in terms of management of information will be first complicated and second, quite often counterintuitive. 
I'm a biologist, I'm a biologist researcher, and all the biological explanations that I tend to think of still operate in a common-sense world, by which I mean I sort of imagine the cells I work on like this room, and, you know, there'll be an object here, and it will meet an object here, it will do something, it will go over here. It's all very commonsensical. You can sort of understand it. But the complexity and organised complexity I'm talking about may take us into a stranger world, because it's not so intuitive, it's not so easy to understood. And the um, metaphor I think of there is the transition in physics from Newton, which was very commonsensical, at the turn of the 20th century, when two things happened. The first was Einstein with relativity, which isn't quite common sense. And I don't know if you ever read a popular account of relativity. You read it, it sort of makes sense. You close the book, and it gradually fades away. <laughs> and that happens to me all the time. And it, 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 it's, it does, it's not quite in our common sense world. So you, you can't quite get to grips with it. It makes sense in the mathematics. It makes sense in a, 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 some sort of way. But it, it fades away. And if you think that's difficult then 27 years later you have quantum mechanics and then you are truly in Alice in Wonderland where you can have two things happening at the same time which are completely different and that is only comprehensible in terms of the mathematics. Uh, you can buy endless books by Brian Greene or um, some such author which talks endlessly about the metaphors behind physics and you close the book and it doesn't mean anything again because you just don't get to the grips of it. I used to feel really insecure about this until my daughter, who is um, a research physicist at, um, at CERN, working on the, um, on, um, the Large Hadron Collider, uh, trying to find the Higgs boson particle, together with many, many other physicists, and she admitted to me last year that she didn't understand it either. <laughs> and I felt much, much better about it. Um, because they, they, and they constantly go, these physicists, to workshops to try and sort of convince each other that some of it makes sense, I think. And um, I hope the physicist is not getting cross in the audience. I'm big, big fans of physics, by the way. Um, but it is really difficult, because it is not in your common sense world. And what I'm arguing is biology may take us into an equally strange world where we will absolutely need the help of physicists and mathematicians to make sense of it. So, my final slide. Four of the great ideas of biology, the cell, the gene, evolution by natural selection, life as chemistry. Everybody would accept them. There are others that we could perhaps add there. And then finally, biology, thinking of biology as an organised system, I think is one that will get um, increasing traction as we move into the 21st century. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.